I believe that every athlete in the world is creative. Just look around. And so if I really want to connect and to a happy place, I listen to some of the music that was on, we call it pirate radio station. Float like my jumper wet, sting like a bumblebee, I swing like a lumberjack, go back when I'm up at bat. Uh, when you are in the locker room in every team in Mexico, pick that song to motivate and increase the energy. No juice. Hey, this is Peter Dunow. And this is Casey Dunow. Welcome to the Athletes Playlist, where we ask your favorite athletes about their favorite music. Our guest today is retired MLS player and sounder favorite Patrick Iani. Patrick started making waves in the soccer world at a young age, representing the U.S. national team at the U14, U16, and U18 levels. His success continued at UCLA, where he performed well enough to be drafted 8th overall in the MLS Super Draft. He went on to represent his country in the 2008 Olympic Games and earned the 2012 MLS Goal of the Year with a screaming half volley, which if you haven't seen it, YouTube it because it is a certified banger of a goal. After a nine-year run in MLS, he co-founded Iani Training. Inspired by his own soccer journey, Iani Training is dedicated to shifting the sometimes toxic culture that infects youth sports. The program gives players, coaches, and parents the tools to develop happy and healthy young athletes. Patrick, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Casey. Thanks for having me on. So before we jump into things, as a reminder to listeners, we like to highlight a few songs that have been meaningful to our guests at various times of their lives. We're going to start today's episode with It Ain't Me Babe by The Turtles, a song Patrick's dad used to bump in the car while driving him and his friends to school. Imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl you love and hold her tight. So happy together I should call you up, invest a dime, and you say you belong to me, lose my mind, imagine how the world could be, so very fine, so happy together. So you mentioned your dad drove you and six other friends to school as part of a carpool. Can you take us behind the scenes to those days in your life and what that meant in terms of forming a relationship with your dad and that community of friends you had? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm still trying to figure out how my dad drove us carpool because um, he was working as a garbage man for um in Stockton, California, and he was working five days a week, so occasionally I guess he got days off. And when he did, um, he would bump the turtles, it ain't me, babe, um, amongst a bunch of other oldies. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a good time. Obviously, a mixed mixed emotions when your dad's jamming out like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look around the car and the other kids are like, "This is funny," then which my dad <laughs> was, was typically able to get a. A, a laugh out of people it was it kind of uh it mellowed my anxiety of my crazy dad so yeah i get that my mom i don't know why but for some reason she was she didn't even like him as an as an artist or a person but for some reason when that song cleaning out your closet by eminem was on the radio <laughs> she thought it was it was good and 
she turned that up and my friends were like your mom's not okay like this isn't this isn't okay to be listening i remember being <laughs> extremely embarrassed so the parents controlling the playlist in the car is high stakes situation when you're a kid isn't it yeah. that was a good song yeah, <laughs> yeah it, is, it, is, it is a good song uh well i think we're gonna get to eminem in a little bit so yeah. would you say the car rides to school to to games i know for us that was sort of like family bonding time was it that way for you like soccer and family kind of going hand in hand yeah very much so um i think a lot of my i have a lot of memories around driving down to watch my brother play at ucla uh, it was about a five and a half hour drive and um typically ended up i guess my sister would have come on some of those but i feel like most of the time it was just me and my parents and uh, yeah i got a lot of good time in the car with them listening to a lot of oldies again yeah. um memorizing a lot of oldies uh but yeah, that was a special, definitely a special time. And then um, getting into like the soccer days and starting to travel outside of, of Lodi, California. Um, it was, yeah, my dad and I, yeah, jamming to, I think we'll get to it here, but um, some, some different stuff yeah. and uh, on the way to games. And so, uh, yeah, it was always fun and, and it was a chance for, for me to uh, connect with my dad through music. So totally. Wait, yeah. and I was I was gonna yeah. ask, was your dad a big catalyst in your soccer career? You know, I, my brother was sort of the big catalyst. I think um, he was 13 years older than me, so he was kind of like a second dad in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was uh, he ended up playing at UCLA and playing playing in MLS. Um, was drafted in the first ever MLS draft in '96, wow. and so yeah. watching him and his journey and um, definitely had an impact and you know i'll get in more into that later i guess but um yeah i mean no i think that you can talk about that now if it what like did you find you were able to pick up training habits or was it more of just an inspiration thing where like oh if he can do it then maybe i can do it yeah i think i think in some ways it was an inspiration for sure um and then on on another note I'll, i'll get into the other the other piece of it but um but yeah my brother was kind of he was cool, right? He right. was cool. He was, he was 18 and, um, and was successful at something. And as a five-year-old, um, there, there's various complexities to that as a five-year-old. Right. But, um, but certainly was something that, that I saw him do. And then of course, somehow both of us, neither of our parents were, were athletic. So it's, um, somehow we got, um, athletic genes. We're not quite sure how, wow. um, but I was able to run and, you know, and all these kind of things. I always tell my kids the story, uh, of me playing with two kids across the street and played a game called Bulldog Crusher, where basically they would throw me the football and I would just run at them and kind of run them over. <laughs> we, we named the game Bulldog Crusher. But um, so that was always a part. Of, I was a very active kid and, um, and and athletic and stuff. And so my brother was able to do that and or do soccer and do it well. Um, I think it was kind of a natural path to follow. So okay, I have to ask a follow up on that as a crusher did you always know you were going to be a center back it just seems like hearing you say that maybe it was meant to be <laughs> i guess you have to ask i mean we can't i guess i still i still want to say it. it's hard for me to, to to not acknowledge ziggy's passing but i i would right. say you have to ask ziggy because ziggy was the one that that transitioned me from a defensive midfielder or, or midfielder to center back with the under 20 team yeah uh, so I don't know for me personally, I'd love, I would have loved to play defensive mid. Sure. Um, but, uh, Ziggy had other plans for me and, and, uh, and that kind of stuck once he put me there. So, 
Yeah, nobody likes getting moved from holding mid to center back. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It's a tough one. It definitely I think- happens. I, I would what do you what percentage do you think of center backs started out holding mid? Because I feel like you to play center back at a super high level, you still need the ball skills that maybe a midfielder would need at do you know what like did that help you basically having that technical foundation? Yeah, I think so for sure. I think it gave me more touches on the ball and tighter spaces and all that, um, which was helpful. Um, but yeah, I, I think that every center back at the professional level obviously probably played forward when they were right. fourteen. You know? mm-hmm. And it was a it was a quick transition back, and I was able to fight off being a goalie, thankfully. Um, but they moved me as far back as they could. So um, you also mentioned listening to Matchbox Twenty's cover of "Won't Back Down" with your dad on the way to soccer tournaments. And that your dad took you to see them is your first concert, which is a great first concert. Uh, Won't Back Down is sort of one of those all-time great motivational songs in American music. Did that song help you get fired up for soccer games? And when did you really embody that Won't Back Down mentality? Um, That's a good question. I... I, I really was more of a, of a thing where me and my dad bonding with each other. Um, like I said, my dad was a real big music guy. His, his, um, his brother was in a Boston or is now in a Boston tribute band was in a Chicago tribute band. And so, nice. uh, growing up listening to that stuff, um, it was just, I don't know. And obviously Matchbox 20 was new and, and current at that time. My dad kind of took to them and, uh, and my dad was was fired up was a was a very passionate kind of youth soccer coach and so him uh him playing that and sharing it with the team and stuff that was his way of of trying to connect and and uh and help us be motivated and all that kind of stuff so um i don't know i don't know how much it like really affected me and like i'm sure it probably gave me just as much anxiety as it oh, did like yeah you know, i can't because, back down <laughs> yeah yeah exactly right like but i'm feeling all this <laughs> things you know so um but i think uh yeah looking back on it, i can say that but at the time i think it was uh it was something that um w- I, I i would have talked about as just a connection point with my dad totally well yeah on that this is something that him and me and him are different about you know both both grew up playing soccer and i found i struggled a lot with getting too too amped before a game trying to listen to stuff so i now if i you know if i'm playing a silly men's league game or something i still i like listen to the most relaxing music i can before the game which is a bit of a twist like are you more on that end where yeah i'm I'm very much like you i'm i was always really pumped um my my i guess you call it my central nervous system was really jacked and so i was trying to kind of calm myself and focus and and be able to bring my myself very present mm-hmm. uh, and I, I don't think that the you know the pump up songs really help with that for me mm-hmm. uh, so and I mean I we you know read your book and we can talk about it obviously there's a lot of amazing insight about basically trying to find the right you know headspace for a player a young player um, so was that something realizing that you wanted that calmer place like did you know that then or yeah no I didn't I didn't know it um at the time I didn't I didn't know it until more or less my my last year in Chicago so wow. it was between my years my my last year in Seattle um and being traded to Chicago where I actually I 
did some therapy. And on the, in that period, I started to realize that, um, my relationship with the game was, was pretty toxic. Um, and I was always very much trying to find as, as kind of on frame gets into, um, trying to find love through the game. Um, and again, that kind of goes back. We, we mentioned my brother and my dad and, and, but seeing my brother, um, get the sort of attention that he did playing, right. That was something that, that to the five-year-old in me was like, well, this is great. You know, I want attention and beyond just attention, um, a sense of safety. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, yeah, so I haven't been, I haven't been shy about sharing that my family dynamics growing up were some, were one where, uh, my mom and dad are amazing people, the most generous people and all that. Um, but the two of them together, uh, there was a, a tension between them mm. that was very palpable. And I, uh, you know, and when I played well, right, this would kind of give my dad a sort of drug, so to speak, that would, uh, would shift his experience. Now I'm speaking obviously from the adult perspective now sure. and this understanding of all this as five years old, I wasn't able to articulate this or understand this. I was just being a five-year-old, which is, uh, a being that is looking for love. Um, and so that I am, I am programmed unconsciously to go in, and find love. Um, and so I was able to use my athletic ability to that end. Um, and, and <clears throat> in some ways you could say, well, it's great because you were able to get that in a way. Right. Um, right. however, there's a, that, that has a shadow, um, side of it too, right. That I was starting to build this sense of, I get love or I, I am <clears throat> based on my performance, right. I am, um, my value was based on that. And so that's something that was very much prevalent in my, my professional years. Um, and we're starting to see, I mean, what basically five years ago I started to realize is this wasn't just me, mm. but this was many of my teammates. Um, many kids that I was training. I've worked with a lot of college kids since then. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing the amount of anxiety and, and, and really un, untouched um anxiety that's that's sitting there um and really affecting players uh ability to enjoy the game of course um but really it affects their ability to uh to evolve as a player mm -hmm. and to develop and as you you had a lot of success quote unquote as a youth player as you progressed and made it you know to u.s national youth teams did the stakes in that feedback loop just get higher and higher yeah. So the way I think of it is, is that this anxiety was born in, in those first few years of playing soccer when I was five, six, even before some of the organized stuff, because I was getting that feedback even before I was on an AYSO team, of course, but the AYSO team really crystallized it in the sense that it was, it was on a regular basis, right? Um, it was two days a week of practice. My dad happened to be a coach. So he was always there. He could have been on the side. He could have been watching practice too. And I, I don't know how much different it would have been. And then of course games. And then it was just four or five years of, of, you know, uh, and there was, I was on a select team. So I was playing about, you know, six months of organized soccer in those younger years, yeah. which isn't, which isn't abnormal today. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it's probably more. Now. And, uh, <laughs> and I was getting, I, what's that? Well, I was just saying it's probably even more, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. And I was getting that, that feedback that like you're saying, I was getting that feedback loop. Um, and, uh, and so it was something that, that, uh, yeah, was, was definitely, um, starting to build that sense. Uh, and it was something that when I believe that once I got to the youth national teams, which was around 14 years old, um, 
that started to it started to intensify that 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 which was already there essentially um and i think it's you know the the that sense of if i am safe based on how i perform well once you put higher competition or, or, mm-hmm. or greater competition in front of you, right? That starts to shake the grounds on right. which you've built your whole sense of who you are. Right. Um, it's a really deep thing. This is obviously what we're trying to shift right. across the country with On Frame, which is the which is the parent book that you guys noted. Um, and then and, and the coaching revolution, which is the coaching book. I don't know if you got a chance to see that, if you guys got a chance to see it, but that's where we're trying to shift. We're trying to shift basically the mental, emotional, and spiritual foundations of wit on how we develop players in this country, um, and uh, and it's showing to be to be really effective in um, in freeing players and giving them uh, opening up courage and creativity within them um, that that otherwise uh, they're not going to be able to access through just doing kind of skill development, tactical development. Yeah, we I. The way you articulated all that um, throughout the book was just a really awesome read. So we'll get more into that later, um, but uh, highly recommend it. We're going to take a little left turn to a little more lighthearted topic and go to another song you picked, which was Summer in the City by Nelly. Uh, so this is probably a sneak peek not that many of your fans may know of, but uh, Patrick walked out to this at a high school fashion show. So, Patrick, uh, paint the picture for us of this fashion show as we uh, segue into this song. Yeah, so uh, in my senior year, and uh, I got the opportunity to, to walk out as a, as a, I was modeling cowboy clothing, um, which I had never worn in my life. But uh, I said, sure, we'll give it a try. And you got to pick your song. And I loved Nelly at that time. Nellyville, I think, was the the album. Um, I think there was another one at that time too that can't remember. But Summer in the City. Um, I don't know. I, it's hard to explain as an adult when you're looking back at a 16, 17 year old and looking at what was I doing. Um, but I, I think I wrote <laughs> to you guys that I was clearly compensating for something. But uh, the the song starts off. I, mean, you guys, I don't know if you guys know the song. Yeah, you know it? we checked it out. Okay, yeah, well, yeah. You're, gonna, you're gonna play it anyway. Yeah. So go ahead. Well. <laughs> Before we do, I mean, I, I think it's a fair tie-in because you you said, like, compensating for something, and I just wanted to ask, I guess, threading the, the theme of the book through your life, like, what was that like, having that part of you that, I mean, you must have felt, at some level, like you were doing good when you're getting the national team feedback, right? And then was i guess how did you manage the disconnect maybe that it sounds like you were having internally with maybe what you were presenting externally yeah you know um i don't think i I had any i was so disconnected from what i was feeling at that time it was just it was me uh in some ways having fun right because um i i knew it um you know you play something like that that's absurd and obnoxious i guess it takes the 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 sting out of it and everyone's focused on the song and it's something that people can talk about. Right. Which I think often is, is part of our way of, of dealing with some of our anxiety and, and different things yeah. that we experience. We can, um, I think that was one of my ways that my coping mechanisms was to, to do something like that. I also wore a shirt in high school that, wore, that said, I love Lodi underneath the, uh, underneath my Jersey. And I would, I would like pull my shirt over my head, like Brandy Chastain and do that. <laughs> if I could create, and I, this is actually something I'm just realizing now, to be honest, yeah. but I, I, I think if you create this uh, some sort of little spectacle of sorts, you can kind of 
take the um, take the attention off of maybe uh, of other things that you're feeling and such. So. Back to the theme of motivational songs, which is interesting because we've talked about how that can be a double-edged sword. But you mentioned before the interview that you Lose Yourself was the song that you and your UCLA teammates would come out to, which is sort of another all-time motivational song, I would say, in American music history. Okay, so heading into college soccer and you're coming out to lose yourself and now it's not just in the car with your dad and your friends maybe, but it's like a stadium of people cheering for you. Is the is the pressure ratcheted up even more? Yeah, well I think I think it's a good time to start to talk about um to talk about stories, right? Yeah. So our 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 ego is creating stories and certainly mine latched on to the story of of, of being awesome because I was a college soccer player at UCLA. Um, and so I think putting on the jersey in Poly Pavilion and walking out, of course, this isn't anything anyone talked about at the time, right? <laughs> but but there was this internal sense that um, when you put the jersey on, you walked up the stairs of Poly Pavilion and you walked into Drake Stadium and that song, they played it, you know, right as we were walking out. So you have someone, you know, whatever your ego just creates all these stories about how you are now important and all these kind of things. Um, and of course, again, my identity was on the line, right? <laughs> my, or this, this made up identity that I had created from a very young age was now on the line. And this song, uh, kind of, um, uh, represented me going out there and, and sort of fighting for my life, yeah. um, fighting for, for, uh, for this this sort of illusory illusion of a of a self that I had created. And speaking of the ego, after or after your junior year of college, you entered the MLS draft and picked by Houston Dynamo. Um, we looked at your stat sheets, and that first year in the MLS, you were struggling to get minutes. So, how did that whole story cope with the fact that uh, the MLS, at least your first year, uh, you were battling through some adversity? Yeah, that for that first year in Houston, um, up until that point, was definitely the hardest year of my career. I mean, the hard, not my career of my life, probably up to that point. Um, 
I had, yeah, like you said, I'd gotten drafted there uh, in the first round and had this U20 hype and all this stuff um, kind of around me and had signed a Generation Adidas contract and got went into a very veteran team um, that uh, was tough to break into. Um, and so, uh, though, you know, obviously it gave me, those guys taught me a lot about professional soccer and, and how to, you know, treat your body and all these kind of things and, and how to play the game. But there was this emotional toll that it took on me because I wasn't getting that affirmation. And it was um, apparently my soul's, you know, time to start to look at some of this stuff. Although I was able to kind of turn towards and I got hurt. my uh, I got hurt my uh, like a month into my MLS career in my preseason um, and was out about four or five months. And I actually I turned to uh, online gambling, not because I'd ever played before, but um well, my, my roommates at the time or teammates at the time were playing and it was something that could distract from some of these things that, that came up. Right. So I got heavily, heavily addicted to online gambling, um, at the time for about, uh, yeah, even, even after I got back from my injury, because I wasn't, I still wasn't playing. Like you, you noticed, I, I think my, my rookie stats are something like two games played in, in two minutes and two fouls or something like oh, that. Nice. <laughs> Foul a minute. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it was something. It was it was it was a start of really seeing this survival um, come to its head because you basically through my first year this this thing that I was very attached to was being taken away from me right mm-hmm. and in that process um, my ego was trying to find frantically trying to find new ways to manage some of this pain that that was starting to maybe maybe just starting to rear its head a little bit. It's interesting with the gambling because that's high stake you're winning and you're losing, but you're doing it very quickly. Like, what do you think I guess was, was drawing you to that vice specifically? Do you know? Well, I, I just, I think that the way that, that our egos work is what I've learned is that, is that it doesn't really care what it is, but right. whatever's there to be had. Right. So like, you know, I know we judge some people that, that drink a lot or smoke a lot or whatever, but I just think that it's what is there. Um, and I think it's pretty clear to see, like when you wonder why people get into certain things, well, um, it's just around them, right? So our ego will take whatever is right around it. And I just happened to be playing, you know, like I said, living with two guys that, that played online gambling and were successful. And so I could kind of rationalize it, which was really a helpful part, part of the whole <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah. I could rationalize they're, they're actually winning money or one particular guy was winning money. And, um, and so it, uh, but it did, it, it, there was an addiction to, sort of the emotional roller coaster, both the ups and the downs, I think. I don't think that, you know, you could separate those uh, those two experiences, but that's kind of um, a whole nother topic. But I think that it's just, it was there and I was feeling all these things that I wasn't even aware I was feeling at the time and I would just latched onto it, so. Totally. It, t- pulling the music thread back into this, another interesting tidbit you shared with us before the show was that your roommates uh, sometimes would uh, play some late night P. Diddy <laughs> which wasn't your favorite thing. Yeah. Was that a manifestation of some of that stress coming through where you're trying to control your environment or? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So these guys, <clears throat> I mean, I had, I had a, a, a guy that I played with out in Houston and you guys can't pull this out of me, but, um, that would get, would, would drink quite a bit. And this was, I'm talking like four or five days a week. And so, um, so it was, and he was, he did decently well. And so kids that are listening to this yeah. don't, don't those footsteps. 
but this is this is only one guy that I know that, that was able to do this, and I think it, it, it definitely affected his career in the long run. But um, but you definitely don't need to be. I was trying to get to bed at like nine thirty, ten o'clock every night, and though that's a good thing, like it's definitely not completely needed, right? You can stay up and have a good time with your friends, and and but I was very much trying to manage and control my environment, and I had a, a story again that that this was some part of the whole complex situation for me that I needed to do this. And I was kind of became superstitious around sleep and, and, and all, a, ma- a number of things, but sleep was one of them. So I would get really upset when I lived with these two guys in Houston and, um, and they would be, you know, after a games, right. We had the day off the next day and they would go out, come back and, um, and we had a town home. So I was on the bottom level Oof. and they were, they, we, you know, they would bring home whatever it was, they would bring home a lot of people. We were, they were young professional soccer players. And, and I, the pictures well, coming together. Yes. yes. And I, and I was down in my room trying to get some sleep, uh, to recover. And, you know, I wasn't even playing. So I was trying to get sleep for, I was a good pro. I was trying to get good sleep for, uh, my, my reserve practice the next there day. <laughs> but there must've been a part of you that was frustrated too. If, if they're having success and you've created that story, well, getting sleep is what gives you success. And, yeah, yeah. Well, one of them, one of them was playing at the time. The other one wasn't. Okay. But I think more so, I think it was it, there was probably some frustration with the fact that they were they were having some fun and letting loose. Yeah. Um, and that was something that um, you know maybe, might get into this maybe my Christian upbringing or whatever. That was something that was um, was very much suppressed within me as well. So, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> well, I would love to get into that, but maybe as a s- softer transition. <laughs> Carrie Underwood. I'm just going to drop that name out there. How did you get into Carrie Underwood and where does that thread into this story of yours? I mean, what I, I don't know. I don't want I asked this question, but what what a uh, young high school boy um uh that was um yeah, didn't like Carrie Underwood, right? So, right. I don't know. So I I, and I maybe it wasn't Carrie Underwood at the time. I don't know who was in high school, but I, I definitely listened to a lot of country music. And it was, it was, it was, uh, I don't even know who was big at the time. I want to say Kenny Chesney or something back, back in high school days. But, but I just, I like country music. I grew up in a small town um, that had some, some ruralness to it. Um, and so that was big. And then, uh, and then Carrie Underwood came out and she was, she was a total rock star. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, uh, and I was in Houston, Texas. And it was just like uh-huh. a perfect, perfect mash you know so mat uh mash of of all of that so um yeah were your teammates able to share that love with you or was that another level of maybe something where you guys weren't eye to eye on no yeah we no yeah i think we all we all could see that Terry underwood was pretty amazing um even my wife my wife at the time we we met in those houston days um and we were able to go to, we all went to the Carrie Underwood concert. And there's a lot of guys on the team that were from the South uh, in Houston that some of the older guys that made it, made it cool to like Carrie Underwood too. So it was all, it was all going for me at that point. <laughs> and Carrie Underwood and country music, um, was that a part of your Christian upbringing? It, I mean, not Carrie Underwood specifically, but country music and Christian music, uh, was that a big part of your life growing up? It was a yeah. It, was, it started to become a big part of my life in in high school when I got to once my sister and brother were out of the house and they I kind of got got to get off of Guns and Roses and Aerosmith and <laughs> Ace of Base and everything they listened to in the eighties and nineties. Um, I got to start to have my own flavor for music and that was uh, and it went 
country pretty quickly. I think it was a couple girls that I dated um, and their families in high school uh, were really into it. And so um, I got kind of hooked. That was All-American Girl by Carrie Underwood. Up next, we got a major change of pace with Otmar Liebert's Barcelona Nights. We'll dig into Barcelona Nights in a minute, but for now, we'll just enjoy the song. You said you listened to Otmar play live at the Chateau St. Michel Outdoor Summer Concert Series in Woodenville near Seattle. Uh, can you tell us about your transition from the Houston Dynamo to the Seattle Sounders and how you got into the concert series? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, first off, I, my transition to Seattle or, or I guess the soccer side of things was mm-hmm. um, Dominic Kinnear was, was the head coach of Houston at the time and, and pretty much told me, hey, listen, we'd, we'd love to have you back, but I think as almost like a dad figure, he, he was kind of like, I think you're going to have a better chance starting somewhere else, um, and kind of getting your career going. So, uh, it was Seattle and Kansas city that were, were interested, you know, after kind of a long off season, I got married and was living with my (laughs) in-laws for about a month. And I was just kind of like, uh, let's get the show on the road. Yeah, Let's get the show on the road here. And so I, uh, so Dom, Dom had called me and, and said, Hey, you know, these, these are your two options. And, Again, I'd played with Ziggy in the under 20s. And so uh, I thought, you know, the familiarity would be good for me. And so not knowing much at all about Seattle, um, literally, I knew nothing about Seattle. Honestly, at 23, I was in my bubble of Lodi and then UCLA and then Houston and uh, never traveled there because Houston didn't travel there because it was an expansion team. And so um, so went up there with my wife and uh, stayed across the street from from started my my Seattle days across the street uh, from Starfire in in a little hotel there. Nice. Uh, remember, uh, it, be, it was snowing, which is you know somewhat rare for Seattle. Um, and uh, and I was like, well, this is going to be an adventure, and it, it it definitely turned out to be, of course. Um, and then we started to get into uh, uh, a little bit into the wine world in Woodenville. Um, we had, I guess I had a couple of appearances, uh, maybe at Chateau Saint Michel and such, and then. We became wine members, and Bob Berto, the winemaker, I'm not sure if he's still there, but uh, he's a really great guy. And um, and then those summer concert series are just are so good. Um, just being outdoor and outdoors in beautiful Seattle, and 
and we got to see uh, Hotmar Liebert, which was kind of uh, one that my wife really wanted to go see. We saw um, uh, who's the other one? What's the he? Oh gosh, from from Father of the Bride. Uh, oh gosh, what's his name? The actor. Uh, he plays um, kind of country, uh, like folk music. Ah, Wait, geez, we I have computers here. We can we can do this. Father uh, yeah, of the true. Bride. Um, Steve, Steve Martin. Steve. Oh, oh yeah, he's yeah. an amazing bluegrass, wild banjo player. Yeah, yeah. So we watched Steve Martin there, um, and a few other tribute bands and stuff. But uh, those are some of the best memories, honestly, of Seattle outside of outside of the soccer world. And um, going there with, with Brad and uh, and the Hauschka, Steve Hauschka was was really into it. Him and his wife Lindsay and uh, Steve could play a little Brett. soccer, right? Isn't did didn't he play kick the ball around with Steve? He he can kick a ball. Yeah, we yeah we uh, he so he lives in the off season uh, a couple miles from me here. So Brad and Brad was down here. Um, Brad Evans, that is. Uh, uh, when was that? I guess last last football off season, maybe about a year ago, uh, or even less. And and we all kicked the ball around. And yeah, Steve's got a nice. Nice, nice kick, obviously. Nice poop. <laughs> but why? But it, but you it, aren't it, mentioning like, dribbling skills or anything. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, yeah. oh, no, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, yeah, he's above average, I'm sure. Uh, that's the population, but compared to you uh, and Brad, that's that's a high bar, you know. He's trying to keep up with yeah, the yeah. last guy. So. Can't give him too much credit. He gets a lot of credit with his kicking, so you know. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Fairly well yeah. compensated. We're still bitter about him not being in Seattle, but that's a, another podcast. I, I, I suppose. Yeah, no, I can't, him to be up there too but maybe maybe he'll get back there i mean he's he's in buffalo right now right yeah so i think quality of life the weather we're just gonna throw out the weather there's (laughs) seattle doesn't have it over that many places but i'd like to think we might have it over buffalo (laughs) not trying to throw shots this isn't that type of podcast (laughs) but i don't know um what there must have been something kind of magical about not not only do you get married, but then you get to immediately move to a new place. So it's like this, the land around you is a new life in addition to inside the home. Did it feel that way? Like in terms of really laying down roots in Seattle while you were here? Yeah, we got, um, we got really connected over, I guess maybe the first year was kind of the team, right? That our kind of click of, of Brad Evans and, and a few other guys in Kirkland, um, that we hung out with and that was really nice. And then we, you know, my wife had a, uh, sort of a second cousin that lived up there that we got connected with that had a boat on Maidenbower Bay. And then there was all the, every, as we started winning open cups and getting, and Sounders started to become a thing up there. Um, it was, uh, we re- very much got, we got treated really well. Um, Adrian of course was really, really good to all of us. Um, <clears throat> as well as Joe and, and, and the rest of the ownership, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely a special time. It was a hard place, hard, t- hard place to leave, especially for my wife. I kind of had the incentive of trying something new, um, and, um, kind of getting out from under, uh, two coaches that knew me for a very long time and Dom and Ziggy yeah, and trying yeah. to be new, which I ended up going to Frank Gallup who knew me for a long time too, but, like, <laughs> but, uh, it had been a while and he had less time with me. And so, and I was, you know, a different stage of my career. So I had that motivation, but my wife was really hard for her to leave. And, and it was, of course, hard for me to leave, too. I was I think it was like three or four days before um, my uh, the trade to Chicago that we were about to go back from Southern California. We were staying with family. We we're about to go back to Seattle. And I thought I had escaped the offseason without a trade. Uh, uh, 
and it was like three days before and Ziggy called and was like, you're going to find out tomorrow that you got traded to Chicago. <laughs> yeah. That's a crazy, crazy life of a professional athlete that things can change on a dime like that. Um, yeah. well, as far as this whole pressure storyline, um, how did that weave in with your Seattle years? You know, I, as a fan, you had a lot of success on the field from what we saw, you know, I think it was in high school back then. Um, but how were you internally feeling about your performance um, during your years in Seattle? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it was because I had left it untouched, right? I hadn't done um, anything about it up until those days. It was it was a matter of, I think that my days in Seattle on the field were better. Um, and, you know, I could try to attribute that to a lot of things. I think the familiarity, familiarity with Ziggy... Um, I think uh, my body felt a little better in Seattle. Um, I had some some issues in in Houston um, in my second and third years there around my pubic area. Like my, uh, I just had a, around my growing area. I had some issues that were pretty painful, um, and um, and so those got straightened out. And then um, yeah, I, I had a, a Pete Vinus was a really good mentor of mine mm-hmm. up there. Um, uh, my friendship with Zakawani. Um, was was really important actually um he was like-minded in the sense he was pretty mellow um uh at the time mm-hmm. he's come out of his shell after after retirement <laughs> yeah. but he was pretty he was very focused and we roomed together and i think that um i honestly i learned a lot about soccer from steve and from pete um and um and and uh they were able to kind of take me under their wing and weren't he was at the end of his career. Uh, that sounds funny because Steve was like at least two years younger than me. Um, but his soccer knowledge was, his IQ was very high. And, and Pete was someone at the end of his career that was able to, um, that, that didn't have much to, uh, I say this, he, he was very much about helping younger players. Mm-hmm. And I took to him very, very quickly, um, uh, kind of a UCLA connection. And he was able to, um, yeah, just kind of assist in, and me seeing myself as a player that could, that could play with the ball a little bit, um, more than I thought I could. Um, and then, uh, yeah. And then it's some of those, I, I started my, I, I guess my central nervous system start, started to quiet a little bit and I was able to read the game. Um, uh, but it was always kind of that, that question in the back of my mind of like, just that was incessant. And I was just kind of pulled all over the place by it of, am I going to start next week? Because, mm my level of anxiety was very much dependent on that. Um, and that's of course, because there was something that was undealt with. And so if, if my attachment was to soccer and, or my value was, was based on that, I was very much looking for that to, to kind of ease that, um, that pain. And so, um, of course that, that every week it was like, it was, I mean, I didn't even, I didn't realize it at the time, how much it affected my, my experience of life mm. on and off the field. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was, like I said, very incessant. And I, I, I knew only to survive in that space, um, at the time and knew nothing about <clears throat> regarding actually kind of quieting, um, my mind a little bit and just feeling some of that stuff. And, 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 um, so yeah, the, it was, uh, yeah. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting to hear. It sounds like the success on the field could quiet, maybe the the anxiety but if you're not dealing with it internally 
it's just levels of how much it's there as opposed to handled essentially is that my understanding that right basically you could have all the success in the world but if you're not internally fixing it doesn't really matter yeah well and i think yeah and i think you see that with a lot of guys towards the end of their career right where injuries start to creep up um they lose a step um they're now not in the favor of of the coaching staff and um and they're trying to manage it all the same um every single athlete right we know this now that every athlete has a, has a difficult sort of, I can't say every athlete, of course, but like the vast majority of them have a, an extremely difficult time, um, in that transition. Um, because it's something much more than, than trying to find something new to do, of course. Right. I've been talking to a lot of guys, um, about this recently where it's not, you're just not trying to find something more to do. You're trying to fu- actually, um, you're trying to reinvent yourself and your, your own identity. Um, and that comes uh, that that doesn't necessarily come that easily, right? right. Yeah, it, you you beat us to the punch on one of the questions. So we, yeah, we we're going to talk about that because um, the, there were some lyrics in the Green Day song you shared us that we'll get into that I thought kind of touched on that. So I don't know if that was intentional or coincidence. But before we get there, um, Peter, will you tee off the next song and, yeah. and the question we have about it? Yeah, so um, the next song we're going to play is uh, from the Frozen soundtrack. And so one of the things we haven't uh, discussed yet is uh, during this phase in your life, you became a father. So maybe just a quick cue in about what it was like for you to step into that father role, uh, watching Frozen with your daughter, and then we'll we'll play uh, Frozen. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, my daughter is... is, is um, is so special to me um and we have such a close bond and um yeah we have such a connection i think beyond just this this lifetime um quite honestly Mm -hmm. and um but yeah those those early years especially in chicago where we got to watch um we we had to watch frozen almost every it felt like every morning before i went out to practice um those are special times uh and fatherhood is a a whole bag of of things that I won't get into right before playing the song. (laughs) It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small And the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all It's time to see what I can do to test the That was Let It Go from the Frozen soundtrack performed by Adina Menzel. Pivoting to Patrick's post-career playlist, we're going to do a song that you said you really like to run to, which is Forever Now by Green Day.
Okay, so I touched on this, and and you spoke really well to it, but I just want to kind of put it out there. The chorus lyrics of that song are, standing at the edge of the world, it's giving me the chills, looking down the edge of the world, lost in a tangle, it's freaking me out. Is, is that how it feels, essentially? That some level of death and rebirth when, when you have to retire and sort of jump over that precipice? Yeah, there's definitely a natural flow to um to sort of sounds funny but dying um your identity dying after playing um and uh and that can be a very difficult long process uh and but there's a there's a flow to it right in the sense that you're letting go and and something new like you said was is being reborn um and that's really that's a really important piece i think of of life uh as humans and we sometimes um look at athletes as as um as machines or or um or just performers of course they're they're humans and and this is something that um that we all experience uh not just athletes but for athletes um and this is the space that i've gotten into now after playing is it's a very unique thing in the sense that you are doing this thing since you're four or five years old and um and at four or five years old, you're in your developmental years where what you are asking unconsciously over and over again is what makes me safe and what makes me valuable. Every single kid is asking those two questions over and over again, um, unconsciously, of course. And, um, and, and so you develop this sense of who you are around something that you end up, if you're a professional athlete or college athlete that you're, or whatever, even a club athlete at 14 years old that you you develop that sense um, through your relationship with the game when you were four or five. Um, and that's a very deep thing. And, um, and so at some point that attachment, um, uh, if, if you allow it to die, like you said, and, and, and you flow with that, and allow that to happen, um, you get um, a tremendous amount of peace and joy on the other side of that. Um, and of course it's not a, it's not necessarily a, a pretty thing to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, for me, it was something that was that I guess my soul felt necessary to go to go in that direction towards the end of my career. Um, and was very I was very, very curious um, about about things like joy and peace that that I, I think I, I knew very little of yeah. um, up until that point. I knew success. I knew in that in the sense of I knew um, how to survive spaces very very well i was very much a warrior right in that way um and uh and it was a totally new world to to begin to feel and to begin to um to um express things that i'd never expressed before um and start to find um find freedom and clarity and and um and passion through that process uh that was really important and and now of course um i want to share that and and one of the biggest ways we're doing that is is by trying to shift the culture at large around um, youth sports in America um, by um, by helping clubs address uh, what what everyone pretty much seems to think is the big biggest problem in youth sports, which is parent drama and um, and I think that it's something that uh, we often we often we do the whole um, the whole bit where we point to 
someone that does some overt damage to their kid. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we like to think, um, that that is, uh, we like to point to that and kind of excuse, um, some of the pain and, and, and damage that we're doing to our own kids. Um, and I think we're, I just think as, as a human race, we're better than that now. And we can, um, we can start to think of the issue in terms of it being a cultural issue and something that we can, we can change culturally. So we, we can raise the temperature in the room, so to speak. Um, and the, the consciousness, the awareness of what's going on. Um, and through that process, um, uh, it'll, it'll start to, it'll get that one parent eventually. Um, but we, we can't start by everyone pointing to the, the person next mm-hmm. to them and saying, well, I'm not like them. You're doing some crazy stuff too. You know? Right. Um, and, and you just don't see it. Right. And so it, it becomes something, it, it's more of a, it's, it's not something because parenting is, is a very deep thing. Uh, you guys have kids by chance? Not no. yet. Not yeah. yet. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but I'll be prepared yeah. when I do. Thanks. To- <laughs> yeah. Seriously. I was yeah. reading the book and like making mental notes like, Oh yeah. Like that makes sense. Well, and like, one of the, one of the things that you're talking about that I found so interesting in the book, it is whatever the opposite of finger pointing is, I feel like is what your, your book is advocating in it. And I was even talking about that with, with our mom. Um, just, just the idea that no parent, I shouldn't say no, but most parents are not trying to harm you know and and what is interesting talking about your relationship with your dad sounds great sounds like he was helping you know like or at least in the sense that he was really excited for your soccer right so with as with when you became a dad did that help you shift that perspective in any way in terms of realizing just where parents are coming from yeah yeah i think that the the awareness, well, yeah, the awareness around, um, around this very almost natural projection, right? We talked about earlier about how my ego jumped onto online gambling in Houston when I, for the first time, my, my soccer career, my young soccer career still at the time was not playing and jumped onto that. Well, kids are something that our egos jump onto very quickly. Um, and, uh, and it's something that, it's you know I'm glad that you're reading the book. I, I it's I you know most par- or parents will other parents will tell you this too. It's something you just can't prepare for because the love that is born for your own kid is is like unlike anything else. And so, but with that, there's also a, a, almost an equal amount of insanity that comes with that, right? <laughs> and so you can attach yourself. Um, and 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 I don't I don't think there's a parent around the around the world. There's not a single parent that. Um, that does not attach in some way to their kids and their success and, and stuff like that. And so, um, we want to, what we're trying to do is trying to raise awareness to where that comes from within us. Um, and it's a really deep place and our parenting comes, uh, comes from a very deep place. Um, and, and so we need an experience that brings us into those depths and honors those depths. Um, uh, if we're, if we're ever going to shift this culture, um, and we're ever going to, see you know for one the the u.s uh win a world cup quite frankly mm-hmm. um i don't think we're going to win it um with machines um when you have players around the world that have a relationship with the game that is much more playful um because 
they they grow up it's part of their culture and they grow up in the streets playing i know zakawani was a good example right and one of the most creative players that the sounders have ever seen Preach. he grew up um right playing uh he was telling me the other day actually he was down here uh with the sounders uh for preseason and and we had dinner and he was saying that he was kind of like he was thinking about our book and everything and he was like yeah you know he's like hey, you guys are onto something he's like i was playing with a somalian kid and a you know whatever he was going through all these different nationalities that they'd met at this park and and he was seven, six, seven years old. And then he said, I was, he said, I was going to Arsenal's Academy at seven years old too. And I said, yeah, I said, the thing is you did have a space though, that this game could be play. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Tried mistakes. Right. I feel like street soccer, yeah. there are, I mean, there are no mistakes except for getting school. And so it's like a place where you can try things. Right. Yes. Yeah. And you can get up and try things again because you're not, we, we develop our sense of who we are very much based on our relationship with our caregivers or our parents. Right. And so if the game is free of that in those younger years, you have the ability to do that from a deep level. It's a very deep thing. Right. So we don't have that. We're not, those two things are separate and that would be ideal for, for all kids, for those two things to be completely separate. Who I am is over here and what I do is over here. And they're not even really concerned at all. You know, (laughs) this is a, you know, it can be mind blowing, to some, but they don't care about getting better. They really don't. Right. Now, of course, they by the time they're five and six and we talk about it, right, and we bring them to enough Sounders games, then, of course, they're talking about getting better and learning these tricks and everything. But it's but it's um, it's very much secondary to developing the sense of who I am. Um, and so we try to keep those things. Ideally, we keep those things separately, separate. And then if it's meant if it's their journey to take on soccer as this as this arena or any other sport, as this arena where where I'm going to evolve as a soul and as a, as a, as a um, and learn these these deeper lessons, then so be it. Then then they'll go that way, right? But they have this 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 they've almost met um, in a more efficient way that third um, rung or, or or stair staircase on on Maslow's hierarchy, yeah. right? Where that love and belonging piece is is more solidified for those kids. And then they can start to ask the question, what can I do? Which is the next question, right? Um, and then the last question being, why am I here? So um, I think we got a lot of, I, not I think, I, I've been doing, I've been, tra- I've trained five, 600 kids over the last three years. Um, and you can bring them just beyond their ability level. Um, now, of course, most, most, you know, uh, we can also kind of just keep them feeling good and talk to them about and be really, really positive but we're dishonoring the part in them that does want to grow. And so you bring them just beyond that, that tipping point for them. And it brings up all kinds of anxiety for them. Right. And a lot of kids will, and this is what you see when they play against, you know, crossfires 18, for example, and no offense to see how any other hey, clubs. Listen, right? as you say that I, mm-hmm. my soccer career, I believe ended, uh, internally playing crossfires sl- a team. Exactly, so right? I very much understand. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or it could have been, I guess it wasn't, but it could very much could have been at uh, 11, 12 years old, Modesto, Ajax and Ballistic United. But yeah, you, <laughs> shout out what you, yeah, yeah, it's what you see. Um, uh, you know, so I, I've been kind of setting an environment where I, I, I purposely trigger for kids so that we can start to, um, we can start to feel that, feel that stuff. And, uh, so the kids and the kids have a safe space. Right. And so I was doing a training with a, a girls U10 team um, this past Wednesday night. And, 
And I actually just got a text while we were on the, well, well we, since we've been talking from their coach and says, whatever you did with this girl, she's been shut down for uh, over a year and she's not uh, nine or 10 years old. She, and she's like, he's like, whatever you did last week worked. He's like, she's like a completely different player. And, and it was just her being able to, I, I kind of set the stage of being in training and just said, Hey, what do you guys feel when you're playing against better, like teams that, you know, are quote unquote better than you. And one rate, one nine-year-old girl raises her hand and says, um, I feel really, really nervous. And another girl raises her hand and says, I, I feel tons of anxiety. Another girl raises her hand and says, I feel really scared. And so that's three out of eight of them that, that voluntarily shared, right, mm-hmm. right off the bat. And I, um, I said, okay, today is about being a happier soccer player. So we are going to get a chance to feel that stuff because we have to be connected and allow that whole feeling world to be able to breathe, so to speak, um, which then brings in things like desire, um, which is a very important piece of development and evolution, is that you're able to be curious about the game and you're able to 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 let your desire take a hold of the game and and start to drive it as opposed to of course out external things um and sort of these attachments uh to the game being apparent for you right and telling you that you're good and not good based on what you do that tends to 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 create players that are uh really risk adverse mm-hmm. and um and uh and not so creative and and um and ultimately when the when the when the when they're, when challenged, um, often, uh, have difficulties, uh, courageously engaging with the game, of course, because, uh, they're, they essentially at, you know, whatever age, 25 years old are running for safety mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, right. Or surviving the game as opposed to being in this playful space with the game where they're playfully solving issues. Like you see kids in sandboxes do, um, and so that is sort of our vision for Yanni training and on frame. And, and we very much, um, uh, we're excited we're excited by the, by the, um, the effect it's had, it has had and, and what it can do, um, moving forward. So yeah, it's a little, a little plug for the book there. Oh, I love <laughs> it. No, we did. Yeah. yeah. And it speaks a lot to me. Like I rem- I think I had a solid two years in my youth career. My only goal in a game was to never turn the ball over, which you know, you aren't going to be a special player if, if that's, if that's your high water mark is, you yeah. know, playing an easy pass. And so, yeah, it's something I, 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 I was my whole nine years in major. League uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you look at someone like Steve, right? Like he played with yeah. some flair and, and, yeah. uh, you know, he had turnovers, but there was also upside cause he was played with joy and, uh, wasn't afraid to yeah. take risks, you know? And I, I think that I think that some the Sounders listeners will appreciate this, but um, that for me it was it was interesting because you know a guy so going into the preseason first year uh, I believe they were trying to sign Jeff Park right and they were and they were it was just but I think it was just me and Tyrone in preseason and so we were playing together and it was going well and then we went we were down in Argentina and they and they brought Hurtado in mm. and. Um, Right. You can, you guys can already know where this is going. Right. So like for me, this was like, I was thinking, dude, I'm, I'm the guy, like I've worked, I've played, been playing really well. And just like, it was like, didn't, it was as if I didn't exist. Right. And, and Hurtado was going to play. Right. Right. And, uh, and it, it's unfortunate because John and I, we were, we were teammates for five years and then another year in Chicago and, um, going out to Chicago, we kind of bonded through that, that, that trade. And, 
and got to know each other's got to know our families. But I had also gone through some therapy at that point. Um, But it was it was unfortunate because I couldn't ever look at John's gifts and really give him the full credit of the amazing player he was because I had all these judgments. And the truth was, I was very envious and jealous of how freely he played Mm. um, and how aggressively he played. And, And yeah, like not I'm not discounting some of some of my tactical things. Right. That mm-hmm. I that I that we had issues over, but but the truth was I think that much I could have worked with that and and we could have balanced each other better. But I was I was too busy, um, uh, of kind of fighting that his sense of joy and his sense of of freedom in the game instead of learning from John and being like, dude, he was very free in the way that he creatively solved problems and and won tackles and stuff. Um, and uh, and so you see it kind of my my point in that is that you see it kind of moving into other areas and relational areas too, um, that, uh, that causes a little, a, a lot of, um, unrest and, uh, and such. So totally. And yeah. we'll let you get out of here, but I have so many more yeah. questions right now. If, if I can squeeze one more in based on that, uh, one thing we talk about all the time is that coaches tell you, and I'm guilty of this as a coach, tell you to play structured because i mean essentially that's their job but then also as a coach you are looking at the you might not you might not uh mean what you say when you see the kid school three guys and score and it's really hard to find the balance of that message right and so we talked a lot about parenting but i just wanted to squeeze in as as a coach how do you foster the balance between between uh, allowing kids to try things and keeping structure. Well, telling you about it and then how to do it, I think are two different things. Mm. Um, the, the how to, um, requires some serious deep reflection, which, which is what the coaching revolution was built to do. Um, but I could say, yeah, you, you know, coaches need to be really, really patient, um, need to get out of the way of course in, in, in a big way when it comes to, and learn how to allow the kids to bring forth what their desires are in the game. Right. And your team might change because of that, because you might have one kid that says like, I really always wanted to play the piano or something. Right. Um, but for the most part, they, they start to come up with ideas um, and they don't leave soccer because they have this freedom now and they really enjoy the game. Um, and now this thing that they were pretty good at, right. Mixed with this, this newfound joy. Right. And their parents starting to understand um, what these younger parts of them are really looking for, um, and how to, how to give those younger parts of them, um, kind of space to express themselves. Um, you start to get players that are, are, are freer. And so, um, but yeah, for, for coaches, it it does come down to some, some level of, uh, we could say therapy. Right. Right. Um, and I, and I, and I don't say that lightheartedly because, um, it's on, it is what we need in the, in the soccer world. Uh, for sure in the sports world and, and honestly in uh, in our society at large is is a uh, is healing right we need healing around these some of these these deep needs that were not met for us when we were kids and and the way that they are um, projecting themselves onto the kids that we coach um, in ways that we're not even aware of and so it's 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 a thing that we um, uh, you know it, it's not about trying to do things better, but becoming more and more aware is what I would say of what is what's happening within us, right? Why, 
what are the what are the things that are happening over and over in our heads with regard to a certain player that might be triggering some different emotions? And can we um, can we have this dual awareness where we can coach, we can give tactical advice, and we can also observe what's going on internally within us and um, and recognize that that um, that our true satisfaction and, and joy is going to come from us being able to have a deeper connection with ourselves um, first, and then we're able to connect with the kids. And then through that connection, the kids will start to blossom. Right. I think on the front of the, the coaching revolution or, or at some point, some copy that we've written says something about like, it's, it's sort of the missing piece in, in coaching education and how we can go from, you know, being your, your kind of average soccer coach to like a, a soccer guru, someone that, you know, a, um, a coach K for example, right. Mm-hmm. A do um, someone that, that players kind of flock to, and and he knows and knows the psychology of what the players are wanting and needing um and some and and the younger parts and how that stuff's starting to manifest and you can start to observe that um and you help the 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 kids tremendously kind of have a new level of freedom as a human being not not just as a soccer player so um yeah yeah, well i like it it, and it seems similar in philosophy to what the parenting exercises are too it is it's a lot of self-reflection first um peter do you do you have any other i i honestly think we could talk with you about this forever because it's just so interesting but do you have any more i'll have a beer now i come up there (laughs) yeah Yeah. i'll be up there for zach awani's charity match so oh cool cool uh, we'll uh come to the game we'll maybe we can yeah i'd love to go to the game yeah yeah you guys gotta get uh guys gotta get on the field hey exactly true right where, where he can, uh, because we're, we're players, everyone can, anyone can play, right? So that's right. Have a little cool. athletes playlist coalition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but is. when I played, our dream is to get a DeAndre on this show because he was the one who was playing for Crossfire Yedlin and he ruined me. So maybe one day at this charity match, You'll get I, his I would say get revenge, <laughs> but realistically, I could just relive it, and that would be a fun experience too. Uh, <laughs> it could be therapeutic. Awesome. Yeah, it could be therapeutic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. Do you have any other um, anything you want to add? No, I think I think I'm good. Thanks so much for uh, for meeting with us and spending so much time and giving such thoughtful answers. Yeah, really yeah. appreciate it. Um, we're going to wrap this episode with Shallow from the soundtrack of A Star is Born, uh-huh. performed by Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. It's a beautiful song from a beautiful movie that I think speaks really well to not just the highs and lows of accomplishing great things in something like music or sports, but also the underlying love and connection that is so necessary to truly enjoy that journey. And uh, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey with us. Um, listeners, visit ianitraining.com where you can order your copies of On Frame and The Coaching Revolution today. You'll be a better soccer parent and coach for it. Patrick, thank you again. JC, Peter, thank you so much. I'll see you guys up there soon. Tell me something, boy. Aren't you tired trying to fill that void? Or do you need more? Keeping it so hardcore I'm falling In all the good times I find myself longing For a change And in the bad times I fear myself